Hello, Knox friends. This is the sermon for August the 2nd. It's good to be with you today. Uh, I'm coming to you today from some time in the woods near the water where I'm spending some quality time with my family this week. It's good to be uh, with you for a few moments in a quiet space I've found to preach the sermon. Uh, mostly quiet. There's a dump truck that may come by doing a job down the road, and you may see a or hear a boat pass by uh, in the background. And of course, one of my beautiful children may come screaming out the door at any moment. Um, but uh, we'll spend some good time today uh, sharing God's word. I find myself uh, blessed to be in a beautiful space and I hope that uh, you are finding yourself uh, safe and healthy and feeling blessed on this Lord's day. Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth and your love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the basic idea in today's sermon is this. If you want to know about justice, ask a woman. These are good words to remember when it comes to understanding the Bible. The Bible is filled with long stories, mostly about the lives of men, but when we read closely, we find that some of the most poignant words and actions in Scripture are the stories of women. Women who were brave, creative, and deeply inspiring when it comes to matters of justice. This is the second sermon in a series about what it means to be teachable people of faith, to be able to hear God's voice and orient your life around that voice. Today I'm going to talk about what it means to be teachable in matters of justice, and as I did last week, I'm going to ground my comments in Bible stories, stories about people who show teachable qualities in their own lives. Today I'll tell three stories, one about Miriam, one about Ruth, and one about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Knowing some background about the lives of these women will make a difference, for it shows how relatable they are when it comes to matters of justice in the world today. One of these women of justice, Miriam, is the first one I'll tell you about. Miriam may not be familiar to you. Miriam uh, is the sister of Moses. Of course, we know a lot about Moses, but Miriam also would have been around for the whole story of the plagues and the Passover and the flight from Pharaoh. And there's something quite remarkable about Miriam. Her words might have been the first recorded words in the entire Bible. Biblical scholars believe that when the stories of the Bible started to make the transition from oral tradition to written stories, from campfire tales passed down in fam family groups to the book that we hold in our hands today, Scholars think the first thing that was written down, the oldest written words we can find, were what has become known as the Song of Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. It is the song she sang and danced to when the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea and gained their freedom. And the words are, Sing to the Lord, for the Lord has triumphed victoriously. Horse and rider the Lord has thrown into the sea. It is an obvious reference to the Hebrews crossing the sea with Pharaoh and his army in pursuit. Later on, people would begin to write down the stories of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. But the words of Miriam 
are the first words they recorded for their ancestors to hear. When the long-suffering Hebrews reached the safety of the shore and the waves came crashing down upon their oppressors and Miriam sang about it, she sang words of justice. Justice for a people who had been enslaved and abused, murdered and stolen from, treated as less than human for such a long time. From the very beginning of what was gleaned from the old campfire stories and committed to writing, ancient people wanted us to know that the God they worshipped was a God of justice. God remembers long-suffering people and will one day restore them to freedom. This is our God. This is one element of what it means to be teachable in faith, to know that our God is a God of justice. The Bible did not begin as a list of moralisms or doctrines one must agree with in order to get to heaven. The Bible began as a statement of justice. This does not mean that the Israelites always got it right. Some of you will remember that after the Hebrews are freed from slavery, God claims them as a people and gives them a law and then they wander in the wilderness before they finally arrive in the Promised Land. When they get there, in the book of Joshua, these new Israelites enter the land that they believe has been given only to them, and they commit violent atrocities upon the people who live there. These are all the Bible stories where the thousands and ten thousands die by the sword in battle with the Israelites. Had the Israelites forgotten all of the stories of what their ancestors endured when they were in Egypt? Could there not have been a way for different tribes to have lived together? In that time, the Israelites proved themselves not very teachable about the justice God intended. In more modern times, in tragic ways, these texts of conquest continued to be put to unfortunate use. Yes, in Israel and Palestine, probably by both parties, but also in other places. They have been used by European Christians in Africa and Asia and throughout the Americas to justify slavery and the conquest of indigenous people in this country. The lesson remains the same. Do not revisit upon others the injustices your own people have suffered. There are countless places where this wisdom is needed. Will we ever be teachable to it? Will we ever recognize the value of the indigenous people in our lands? Or that revenge is a cycle that will never end? Will we ever learn to give thanks for God's justice without seeking to oppress somebody new? These are the lessons and the challenges of the story of Miriam. The second story I wish to tell you is about Ruth. It's a bit of a complicated story. It begins with a famine in Bethlehem and a man named Elimelech who flees the famine for the land of Moab along with his two sons. They settle in Moab and they are welcomed kindly enough that Elimelech's two sons marry women from the land of Moab. Then the story takes an awful turn. Elimelech dies, and so do his two sons. Three widows are left behind. 
Naomi, who was the wife of Elimelech from Bethlehem, and two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, from Moab. These three are left to fend for themselves in a culture where men controlled all of the wealth and widows were quite vulnerable. Thankfully, the fa famine in Bethlehem comes to an end. So Naomi decides that she will return to her home where she hopes her family will take pity upon her. She advises Orpah and Ruth to do likewise, to return to their own Moabite families of origin. With them, she says, is their best chance for survival. Orpah goes, but Ruth refuses this advice. She is loyal to Naomi. And she says to her mother-in-law, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. Read the whole book of Ruth this week, if you can. It's only four chapters long. And in those chapters, we learn that through this deep commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi, this immigrant immigrant woman to Bethlehem saves her family and becomes a hero of the Jewish faith. It is a story about immigrants and refugees, people who flee their homelands, not because they want to, but because they can't survive there any longer. So they make a desperate bet that life elsewhere will be better. Of course, we see this same thing playing out in countless families in the world today. People flee their own countries by necessity of famine or economic disruption or other dangers, and they come to our borders in search of a better life. When Ruth arrives in Naomi's home in Bethlehem, she does the only work she can. She gleans in the fields for the leftover grain after the local farmers have finished their harvest. She does the work no one else wants to do, just like the immigrants of today. It is through her deep commitments that Ruth will secure a new life for her family. They are commitments that are made in faith, because she doesn't know what the outcome will be. When we talk about immigration in our own country today, the debate often neglects the incredible commitment and sacrifice made by the immigrants themselves. People who are not sure what the outcome of their commitment will be. For those of us who don't face these same challenges to our safety and security, how can we be teachable? What can we learn from the stories of Ruth and from the immigrants of our own day? One thing might be a willingness to make long-term commitments of our own commitments that may involve risking something of ourselves in order to help someone else. How do we create welcoming environments and good opportunities for immigrants in our own land? How do we learn more about the hardships they face? And are we willing to make real commitments to help, even if we don't know exactly what the outcome will be? Through Ruth's life, God has something to teach us about justice for people who have lost their home or their family. 
and about the faithfulness they show in seeking a new life. These are questions of justice. They are also questions of faith. The stories of the Bible touch on such a wide range of matters of faith, from spiritual health and growth to big questions about God to these matters of justice. Sometimes when a sermon is explicitly about justice, people will ask me what all of this talk of justice really has to do with faith. Isn't church supposed to be about Jesus, they ask? So why so much focus on justice? And that question brings us to the last story for today, which is about Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of the personalities most identified with faith. When Mary hears the news that she will conceive and bear a son, God's own son, Mary must struggle with what that news means for her and for others. Thankfully, she struggles with those questions out loud, so we know what she was thinking. Mary sings a song, a song that explains what she is feeling when her heart and her life are filled to bursting with love for God. The song is known by tradition as the Magnificat, and here are its words. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. When Mary's own life is filled with a miracle of faith, and when she eagerly awaits the birth of her son Jesus, the first thing that Mary sings about is justice. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It's a song of justice. The acts of God's justice are the things for which she knows Jesus will also be remembered. You might notice that conspicuously absent is any mention of believing in Jesus in hopes that one will earn their way into heaven. That notion, which has become so strong in modern Christianity, does not seem to have had much of a place in Mary's faith. Mary's first instinct when she had her strong encounter with God, was to speak about justice. It may be a challenging notion to those who would prefer to just talk about doctrine, but it's true. The good news in these stories of justice is that they are still happening today, and there are still women who have so much to teach us. The Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, which is transitioning in the public consciousness from a fringe group of protests to a significant political moment. This is the product 
of the courageous leadership of young black women. They're the ones in charge. The work of justice in our own congregation at Knox, it's the product of the commitments that many of you have made. But it's also important to note that the session members, the elders who currently lead our racial justice task force, the group guiding much of our work, that leadership is coming from our congregation's women. It is amazing the sacrifices and commitments that they make in the cause of justice, especially when we consider other things that we know about women. COVID-19 will no doubt pose the greatest challenges to women, all kinds of women, single working parents, married women who do an outsized portion of the housework and the child rearing and the educating, working women who are paid less for their time than men, and yet they also teach us the most about justice. How will we be teachable to the women God places in our lives? How will we be teachable to the women God places in our lives? The ones in the ancient stories and the ones of today. Thanks be to God for the wisdom she sends us. Amen.